Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well and hard to believe we are halfway through another uh, week. I know it wasn't that long ago I was on the air last with you guys, but nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air um, a little bit sooner than anticipated. I must say that uh, per each uh, podcast segment episode to the uh, current uh, book topic series we are doing on Benedict Arnold, I'm very impressed to see that many of you all are very uh, interested in wanting to learn more about what Benedict Arnold um, had done not so much what he had done in terms of being what he is uh, infamously known for, and that is um, committing the most egregious of um, sins, or rather I should say actions, for the time that he lived in. Of course, I don't want to um, ruin what we still need to uncover, but the majority of us who know about Benedict Arnold know that he did something that was very unthinkable for his time, rather for the time that he lived in, but at the same time, we are learning more and more about why about why he is going to do what he eventually uh, will ultimately uh, do that leads to his uh, greatest of undoings. You know, it's so easy to assume that just because one engages in something that's um, risque and appropriate, that it's only for one reason. But as time goes along, we're learning that it's more than just one reason. And we are also learning, too, that, um, you know, it's one thing to want to uh, make up for past uh, grievances. It's one thing to make up for, um, for, uh, for say, a past action where um, your image may have been tainted or that of your family's image may have been um, tainted. But at the same time, is it fair to say that trying to achieve too much of a, a personal honor or an image can have a, a price? I'm beginning to wonder at this point in the game, here we are in the late 1770s, around 1778. We learned from our previous uh, podcast episode how Benedict Arnold, uh, his role as military governor, and that there were a lot of uh, questionable things he started to do. Given the fact that he felt it was okay to live, what we would say in today's time, uh, a phrase, you know, living beyond your means. In other words, Benedict Arnold is trying to become something that maybe, into the eyes of other people, he really shouldn't be. You know, yes, you know, you shouldn't be, You sh one should not surround themselves on one hand with those whom would, you know, question everything that they want to set their eyes on wanting to achieve, However, at the same time, there are limits, and perhaps in this case, maybe Benedict Arnold does not realize that there are limits in trying to achieve uh, personal fame, achieve glory. In other words, yes, it's one thing to achieve something, but there should come a boundary with it. And it is fair to say that even during the times in which Benedict Arnold is living in, that a man's personal image and honor are a big deal. He's trying to erase everything that his father squandered. But at the same time, what Arnold is engaging in now rivals, maybe not 100% close to what his father did, but there are some similarities. Yes, his father sought personal fame, but his personal fame came at a bad expense by becoming an alcoholic. 
At the same time, Benedict Arnold, yes, he was wounded at Saratoga. He said uh, that he had wished he had been shot in, in the heart. Probably would have died on the battlefield, and he would have achieved ultimate um, status of martyr, dying not only for a cause that he knew was right, but uh, dying knowing that he uh, risked it all and was the one that really deserved the true credit at Saratoga, not you know Horatio Gates, who, who had not once set foot out on that uh, uh, battle, especially at um, the Battle of Bemis Heights on October 7th of 1777. So where do we go at this point, um, given that we are uh, now going to be in, into another uh, podcast segment episode to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm? We will be uh, learning about his um, court-martial. We will also be learning about the beginning uh, stages of the plot that will ultimately doom him in terms of the greatest undoing that leads to the greatest uncovering, an uncovering that even the Continental Army's leading commander, being none other than George Washington, never thought in a million years could have happened. So here we go with our first leadoff question to this uh, segment, uh, to this podcast segment episode of the tragedy of Benedict Arnold. How many charges did the Pennsylvania Executive Council impose upon military governor Benedict Arnold? It was just under 10. Uh, the answer is eight. There were eight charges um, that for which the Pennsylvania Executive Council imposed upon uh, Benedict Arnold, or rather I should say military governor Arnold. However, none of the charges pertain to anything battle or uh, battlefield uh, combat-wise. The charges focused upon Arnold's abuse of power, or let alone abuse of authority, during his time as military governor, where he engaged in practices only to benefit himself versus the greater community. Arnold is fully aware now that Washington's post-selection of giving him the military governor commandership uh, position for uh, the city of Philadelphia was probably not the best choice, or let alone the best fit. Arnold is also aware that Washington is now stuck between a rock and a hard place, given how much the general himself had already done by defending Arnold from other incidents, most notably incidents from uh, various battles. You know, even the best of people, you know, people who, who strive to be good, do mess up in life. Of course, messing up in life, you know, that's a vague um, phrase onto itself. I mean, there are different degrees of messing up. But the big question now for George Washington is, okay, gosh, only knows how many times I've stuck my neck out for, for Benedict Arnold, and I know he has appreciated it. But what was Benedict thinking here? Did he really think he could engage in practices only to benefit himself? Here he is, here he was earlier accusing those whom he felt were out to get him. Here he was earlier saying that there were those in Congress whom were only looking after their own wallets. And look what he's now doing as military governor. Was, ben was Benedict Arnold really looking after the well-being of Philadelphia? 
No. Hate to say it, but it's true. Arnold uh, was brought to uh, Morristown, New Jersey, and the continent being the Continental Army Winter Headquarters in 1779. And just to give you all a little history about the winter of 1778 to 1779, it was beyond brutal. November, 1770, November of 1778 saw four snowstorms. If four was bad enough, try the month after December of 1778, there were seven snowstorms. Arnold arrived to Morristown just before Christmas Day of 1778. Morristown was already under two feet of snow. The Continental Army's uh, overall state or condition was not good. Officers whom could not find adequate lodging, being that of uh, houses, were forced to sleep in tents on ground already frozen. Now, can you imagine being an officer and you can't have, uh, you can't find adequate lodging, being that of a tavern or or a house, and the only thing you've got is a um, is a tent. A tent might be better than nothing, but you know, think about it, folks. There's no in, there's no, um, there's no modern day AC heater unit. Uh, there's there's nothing that can, for these uh, for the officers and the soldiers really to be able to relieve themselves in terms of warmth unless they start a fire. But they can't start a fire inside the tent. Otherwise, the tent will catch on fire. So, in the midst of Arnold's um, pending uh, court-martial matter, soldiers were struggling to support themselves and their families while answering uh, at the same time to the call of duty. The money that Congress was um, regularly using was... It wasn't um, hard currency in the form of silver or gold. I mean, whatever silver or gold they had um, was only in the hands of a select few. And if they had that money, which a select few had, then yes, it was very uh, beneficial. But the, but the money that's being used is paper money. And as I've said many of times before from a previous uh, podcast um, topic uh, uh, segments, per uh, past uh, book topic discussions, rather, I should say. Paper money, um, it might be worth something today, but come tomorrow, it's not going to retain the same value. So Congress is pretty much using uh, paper money, but it's becoming all the more uh, worthless. And by the time of Arnold's uh, court-martial hearing, uh, by the time it began, a captain's annual pay could result in purchasing just one pair of shoes. You know, early on in the in this war, many Continental soldiers were promised at least two or three pairs of shoes. But they were lucky if they got one, and a lot of that was because the quality of leather was not the same. You know, it's one thing to declare your uh, separation from England, but when you declare your separation from England, you are also willing to forego a whole assortment of uh, products that are in greater demand in England, given it's not so much in greater demand in England, but there's a, um, a broader base or population of people that can uh, produce those uh, goods on a larger assembly line due to the fact that there are larger populations, like in, say, London, 
Liverpool, Bristol, Plymouth, where they can transport uh, mass quantities of leather over to the uh, colonies, uh, or rather the 13 colonies. So you're more than likely to get better quality leather if that leather is shipped from England, say, to Virginia, versus um, people in Virginia trying to make leather. I mean, they can do it, but it's not going to be on the same um, mass production scale as it would be in London. So, so nonetheless, uh, the uh, average um, soldier at most, or rather in this case a captain, his annual pay at best could result in purchasing just one pair of shoes. Whereas the average uh, private ranks, or rather a private rank, private's rank, his pay might not have even meant being able to purchase anything essential. He may have gotten something, you know, 101 basic, but there's no guarantee that uh, Private John Smith might have gotten access to a new pair of shoes. But and all of that's not because getting the shoes, it's the uh, value of the paper money itself. So, if this is all bad enough, folks, many officers have resigned their commissions out of anger, disgust, given the fact that that the uh, that the money that uh, Congress is um, printing has no value, and if it has no value, then then it becomes harder to purchase the most um, fundamental essentials in order to uh, keep fighting this war, especially the most basic essentials: uh, shoes, clothing. Um, anything that would um, help a soldier in the most, um, say, oppressive of conditions, like say oppressive heat, or let alone the most than uh, the most uh, frigid of uh, weather conditions outside, especially in the heart of winter. Now, come the time of uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, court-martial hearing um, that would soon take place, would he have more defenders versus enemies? Turns out Arnold, this time around, had more enemies. That's not to say that he had his share of enemies prior to this prior to this uh, court-martial, but the enemies have grown. The enemies were found in Congress and, all, and along the battlefields, but by 1779 and the year before 1778, the reason why, the primary reason for why the enemies had grown it was largely because of Arnold's decision-making while serving as military governor of Philadelphia. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we learned that some of his actions as military governor of Philadelphia, um, one I know involved his um, closing down all the shops um, without... Um, in a sense, he closed all the shops, but yet he secretly opened some of the shops to conduct... Um, his own personal business affairs while leaving all the other merchants out left to dry. As a matter of fact, we'll uh, mention some more about that here in a moment. But in case some of you had forgotten, that was uh, one of the re that was one of the reasons why um, tensions became uh, worse to where by the time this court martial uh, begins, uh, the enemies become more prevalent than the uh, defenders for Arnold. Uh, the, the Pennsylvania Executive Council uh, came before Congress with all eight charges, only for Congress to appoint an investigation committee, which was, you know, proper protocol. 
Although Arnold testified repeatedly for proof of evidence, the council declined to respond. The investigation committee dropped six of the eight charges, a.k.a. 75%. However, a fellow by the name of Joseph Reed, who is one of the um, Pennsylvania executive uh, council members, overturned Congress's findings and got four charges sent to um, court-martialing. March 19, 1779, saw Benedict Arnold resign his uh, military governorship post. Even the resignation alone, folks, was not enough to ease existing tensions amongst the Pennsylvania Executive Council. Now, you can resign, you can admit some wrongdoing, but it's probably not going to be enough to um, heal things even 50% at best. Uh, during the summer of 1778 in Philadelphia, during the summer of 1778 in Philadelphia, during that time, did military governor Arnold get presented with a long list of enemy sympathizers? You know, enemy sympathizers, folks, um, a.k.a. loyalists. Yes, he did receive a long list of enemy sympathizers in the summer of 1778. Uh, one uh, Patriot captain being, uh, or rather Continental Army captain being Charles Wilson Peel, gave Arnold, in a particular setting alone, a long list of sympathizers whom Arnold needed to be made aware of, so this way the red flags wouldn't become any bigger, but what does military governor Arnold do instead? He doesn't uh, go about making any arrests. Sure, you know, yes, he would have needed probable cause for an arrest to be made, but there probably was enough activity going on in the heart of Philadelphia to make arrests among to make arrests on those whom not only were posing a threat based upon their loyalty, but perhaps um, selling secrets, perhaps doing things that would have uh, endangered uh, the well-being of Congress and perhaps that of the Pennsylvania Executive Council. By 1779, Philadelphia saw a large spike in mob violence amongst radicals and moderates. October 4, 1779, a breaking point erupted when nearly three dozen moderate political and military officials were forced to defend themselves inside James Wilson's home. James Wilson uh, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, a very um, bright individual to say the least. But uh, nearly three dozen moderate political and military officials were forced to defend themselves inside Wilson's home only for the radicals to manage breaking down Wilson's front door. Think about it, folks. We don't have any uh, Brinks um, alarm uh, protection system back then. Um, so, you know, it's not like, you know, the alarm goes off and someone's going to call up and say, uh, how is it that we can help you? Uh, what's wrong with your home? We should be reminded, folks, that a lot of people did take matters into their own hands, even in times of war where factions from within, in this case being the Continentals or the Patriots, are still in, are, are in conflict with one another, all because of their political views. 
So it's bad enough that the uh, radicals have broken down uh, James Wilson's front door. But what follows next is an exchange of gunfire ensuing along the stairway. Moderate leader Colonel Stephen Chambers lost his life right before the mob crowd got driven away. Nearly six to seven men died, folks, and others were severely wounded. Radical leader Thomas Reed, he was the one that led the uh, radicals down to Wilson's home and, bro and broke down the front door. Well, radical leader Thomas Reed released all members of his militia mob from jail, including getting an amnesty. And for those of you who aren't sure what amnesty is, that's a mass pardon, where you're pardoning, say, 10 or more people uh, for improper actions they committed in the past, but you're willing to pardon them on the grounds that they have shown uh, contrition, they have shown remorse, that they, uh, given that they've been granted a pardon, a mass pardon, they have uh, proven that they are still uh, worthy um, people. That's just the uh, best 101 interpretation I can give you all with regards to amnesty. So nonetheless, uh, radical leader Thomas Reed has, um, has been able to provide um, an amnesty, or I should say a mass pardon, on the uh, militiamen's uh, behalf. Now, if this is bad enough, folks. Uh, Benedict Arnold, you know, he tried to resolve the problem. I mean, he confronted Thomas Reed before uh, Reed and the radicals broke down Wilson's door. But even um, for all the power Benedict Arnold had, he couldn't, he was not able to stop Thomas Reed. Well, Benedict Arnold, folks, is not immune to mob violence. He even requested, on behalf of Congress, for troop guards when venturing out into public, and Congress denied his request. So it's fair to say that even Benedict Arnold was a sitting duck. No matter where he went, people targeted him. Uh, what is unique about a court-martial trial? Well, let's think about uh, a court-martial trial that would have um, appeared um, in Benedict Arnold's time, most notably in a time of war. For one, uh, the jury in Arnold's uh, trial was made up of 13 officers from different regiments. And pay attention because the, the number 13 will be mentioned uh, frequently. Uh, of course, during this time, I, when I hear the, the number 13, I, I think of 13 colonies, you know, from, New from as far north as New Hampshire, from as far south as all the way as Georgia. So could it be fair to say that 13 officers could represent one officer from each colony or state? Yes, I believe so, because if we, if we pack the um, jury with all New Englanders and nobody from the mid-Atlantic states, as well as the southern colonies, then to me we are showing uh, partiality. But if we have... 13 officers, one from each uh, colony or state, then we are showing impartiality, meaning that we're not favoring, in this case, one region. It has to be a united front, especially for uh, General Washington. So this, um, in the case for Benedict Arnold, the trial was made up of 13 officers from different regiments, which included a president whom uh, presided along with the vice president uh, present. 
The trial began uh, with what is called a JAG, Judge Advocate General, and there, there used to be a television show back in the 90s and early 2000s uh, called JAG, uh, which had to do with uh, military and um, court proceedings um, that were conducted by the Judge Advocate General. So for a court-martial trial, you got your Judge Advocate General whom read all the charges and asked how the accused wished to plead. Once the prosecution's case was done, the accused had the right to make an opening statement, submit evidence to calling out witnesses. As for Benedict Arnold, he pleaded not guilty. He defended himself, and the presentation proceedings began on February 3rd, 1779. Now, I will have to keep this, keep, remind, or how should I say it, I will need to tell you all this right now, that even though the, the proceedings have began, the um, official trial will not begin until much later. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why later? Well, we have to get to that, but uh, let's now, um, Let's find out a little bit more about the uh, charges that were brought against Benedict Arnold. We, uh, Thomas Reed uh, brought four charges against Arnold, and they were the uh, following. The first one had to do with um, the spring of 1778 while at Valley Forge. Arnold authorized the use of a ship belonging to Philadelphians loyal to the crown being that of the enemy, to enter an American port without permission from Pennsylvania state leaders, including General Washington. Okay, it's one thing to get the okay on a ship, but if this ship does not have, um, if this ship is uh, catering to that of loyalists, the enemy, who knows what secrets could be uh, leaked out? Who knows what the loyalists could reveal? Who knows if the loyalists in Philadelphia have conspired with those coming aboard into port off the ship? Who knows what kind of plans could ensue where the loyalists could um, break into the halls of Congress, hold members of Congress hostage, including the Pennsylvania State Executive Council? So that is a serious infraction. How about number two? Benedict Arnold had all shops and stores of Philadelphia closed on his arriving, but went up, but he went about behind closed doors to engage in improper business dealings. So isn't that fair to say that the merchants are are bearing the brunt of Arnold's improper actions? He's closed. He. He uh, sees to it that their shops remain closed, but yet he's going to go behind their back and open up the doors to certain shops when he feels like it, just to ensure that he can get um, a deal that will only benefit him and not the greater uh, cause and that of the Continental Army. The third one was that Arnold placed petty assignments upon sons of freemen, whom already were on militia duty, but yet Arnold claimed he had the power to do so. In other words, he claimed that he had the power to oversee to it that um, that the sons of freemen, given that they were already on militia duty, were uh, required to perform other tasks that 
supposedly were not um, included in their what we would think of in today's time as a contract that would list all the fundamental uh, duties uh, being performed. Number four, um, and the last one, funding, or rather I should say improper funding. Arnold um, went about improperly engaging in using wagons that belonged to the state, being Pennsylvania, where private property was transported without getting without going through the proper uh, chain command. And that would have been uh, during the uh, standoff at Egg Harbor, uh, New Jersey, when the uh, British started attacking um, the town. Arnold, yes, he ordered um, the wagons to, to take whatever they could um, that would not fall into enemy hands. But Arnold also asked for 50% of the profits. In a time of crisis like that, I don't think you should even be asking for, it doesn't make a difference whether it's for a fourth, half, three-fourths, you name it. This is not about chasing the almighty dollar. It's all about making sure that nothing valuable does fall into the hands of the enemy. But here, the violation was that he did not get uh, the proper uh, chain of command. In other words, no proper protocol. Arnold defended his actions, and while he did not deny any of them, he methodically came up with doable explanations for each one to where he became convinced that the chances of getting cleared would be more to his favoring. The Pennsylvania Executive Council did add a complaint on Arnold regarding his middle ground stance amongst loyalists. And they had every reason to. Now, what happened on January 26th of 1780? For one, the court reconvened at Norris's tavern, but secondly, Major General Robert Howe reported the jury's decision. The court found Benedict Arnold guilty on two charges. One, Arnold should not have allowed a ship in the hands of the enemy to enter an American port, being that of Philadelphia. Second, the use of wagons, despite his paying for them, it was still deemed improper. The other two charges are dropped, but for Major General Robert Howe, he advised that the, two, that the two charges that Arnold was found guilty on, Arnold was to get a reprimand. That's what he called for. And that reprimand did go through, and it came from none other than General Washington himself. Can't imagine what General Washington's thinking here, folks. February 12, 1780, Congress approved the verdict, and on April 16, 1780, General Washington's letter of reprimand to Benedict Arnold was issued. In the midst of Arnold's court-martial, his sister Hannah and his two youngest boys came to Philadelphia, where they resided with him and soon-to-be Mrs. Um, well, I take it back, they were already married, they came to reside with him and his uh, wife, uh, Peggy. I had to be reminded that uh, Benedict and uh, Peggy married uh, the year before, or around uh, April or May of 1779. Prior to getting court-martialed, and this is where we gotta, we're going to start uh, finding out some things differently. Prior to getting court-martialed, were there any signs or indications that Benedict Arnold was unhappy about America's future. 
It turns out, folks, yes, prior to getting court-martialed, Benedict Arnold did show signs of unhappiness about where America's future was going. Well, for starters, uh, he became all the more resentful of numerous rival and younger generals whom got promoted above him, including receiving honors which Arnold himself thought were only to be bestowed upon himself and no one else. Secondly, in the months after late May of 1778, when becoming Philadelphia's military governor, Benedict Arnold wrote to General Nathaniel Green advising him just how bad things were in Philadelphia, including problems within the Continental Army, and went as far as predicting in the letter to General Green complete total ruin should things not change for the better somewhere down the road come the foreseeable future. If I were General Nathaniel Green, and he did write to one of his other officers about Arnold's uh, current state of unhappiness, but if I had received a letter like this, to me, based upon the wording of it, it would sound... Um, it would sound unbecoming, it would probably be a little scary, and maybe it would come across as a red flag. You know, it's one thing to be unhappy, but if you're taking this to the extreme like Arnold is, who's to say that who's to say that anything that other people would say is is unrealistic or is or or can't happen? I think you probably would want to start thinking twice about that. Things that you don't think could happen that someone would do, yeah, they can do it. They can turn a blind eye and and um, betray you um, in a manner that you didn't uh, see coming. Although Congress would find nothing hardcore per the multiple charges brought against Arnold in preparation of leading up to the court-martial, uh, Congress still gave in to the Pennsylvania Executive Council's demands for seeing to it that Benedict Arnold made multiple um, violation acts as military governor and therefore ought to face a courtroom with the jury where he would be held accountable. Given Benedict Arnold's uh, court-martial trial would not take place until December of 1779, given that it did not take place until that time, folks, what course of action did not... Um, what course of action did he begin pursuing come early May of 1779, not long after um, he and uh, Peggy Shippen were married? Arnold made an initial contact with a British representative, being uh, Lieutenant Christopher Hurley, or Hurley, whom had a letter on hand written by a colonel by the name of Beverly Robinson, whom was the commander of the Loyal American Regiment. And this letter alone, folks, um, is um, powerful unto itself because it's not just a letter written to one person. It's a letter that, um, that it was, in a sense, meant to inspire hundreds and maybe not thousands of Americans whom say they weren't feeling good about what was going on at the present moment. What would they like to think about regarding their future? So the letter's purpose sought to recruit those Americans whom weren't happy with the current, um, with the current uh, patriot movement. In other words, 
you know, okay, if you're seeing a lot of um, things uh, fluctuating right now and you don't like the direction of leadership in the Army, you don't like so-and-so, I mean, whatever it is you don't like, and if you're looking for a better escape route, maybe you should come over to the side of the Loyalists. We might have some things to offer that, that the Patriots don't. It's more than just king and country in terms of what, of what this letter is uh, focusing on. Um, I do know that um, that uh, the letter uh, was written, yes, the letter itself was handwritten by Colonel Beverly Robinson. Um, Colonel Robinson was a one-time uh, former friend of George Washington's. A little scary right there. Colonel Robinson owned a home an estate near West Point along the Hudson River. And that and West Point will be mentioned here shortly, folks. Robinson's letter also focused on matters such as America's future in regards to how she could operate from a government standpoint, or let alone an independent government uh, sovereignty. In other words, if America were to win this war, what kind of government would her people want? And if the government itself, being that it got established, would America's people feel happy about their government? And would they be happy with their government, not just short-term, but long-term? You know, it all kind of stems back to, um, in the years leading up to 1776, after the French and Indian War, most notably when the First and Second Continental Congresses were convening, uh, especially that moderate faction led by Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. I have no doubts that Mr. Dickinson probably said to many of the radicals, you know, look, you know, it's one thing to, to want independence, but if you go forward and sever your ties with England, what government, what kind of government do you plan on creating? And the government that you do create, are you going to be satisfied with it? Are you going to be satisfied with it even a year after you have officially uh, severed your ties with England? Who's to say that what you create tomorrow will last 25 years from now? So, you know, this is all part of a radical experiment. I mean, we haven't even thought of what kind of government, although it probably is fair to say that many in Congress know that they don't want to live under a monarchy. But the bigger question is, okay, if we don't want to live under a monarchy, then what kind of government can we live under that doesn't bear resemblance to being that of a monarch? So this letter really, uh, this letter in a sense also talked about America's future and how America could operate from a government standpoint following the midst of victory and whether or not her people would be happy short or long term. June of 1779 saw Benedict Arnold take another step in the uh, wrong uh, direction. He met a fellow by the name of Joseph Stansbury, whom was a prominent loyalist and merchant in Philadelphia. During the British occupation of Philadelphia, uh, Joseph Stansbury uh, became commissioner for selecting to uh, governing the city watch he became the British uh, secret agent and courier for John Andre. And we will be uh, learning more about Mr. John Andre here shortly. Uh, 
Joseph Stansbury was also the chief of British intelligence, and he was a friend to Peggy Shippen. He met with John Andre right after the meeting with Benedict Arnold. Wouldn't it be fair to say that everyone in the greater society of Philadelphia knows who not only knows who Peggy Shippen is by name, but knows the, the ship but knows of her but know of her in person? Yes, they do. Peggy Shippen, as I mentioned from the last podcast, was frequently seen at balls, um, theater plays that the British held, that British officers uh, conducted during their occupation. Peggy was pretty much at every re- regalia. I mean, she basically was one of those people who didn't miss out on anything. But I'm beginning to wonder that if um, Joseph Stansbury knows her, and I'm also beginning to wonder if other key prominent uh, British um, officers and um, and troops know of Peggy. Something tells me that Peggy, something tells me that there is a dark side to Peggy Shippen, or rather I should say Peggy Shippen Arnold, that, um, that we have to wonder, is Benedict Arnold aware that his wife might have ties well, I think it's fair to say that Benedict Arnold already knows that. He already knows that the Shippens uh, are one of Philadelphia's most prominent families. He knows that there are connections. So let's keep on finding out what we don't already know. Which British officer became somewhat leery about contact with someone like Benedict Arnold? How about General Henry Henry Clinton? Clinton was well aware of Arnold's past, including his relationships with Congress, military officers, and the pending court-martial matter. Clinton viewed Arnold as someone filled with um, unchecked instability, and while he had his reasons to um, see Arnold as someone with a lot of, um, say, emotional instability, he's actually... um, He's actually, he's not going to um, burn the bridge. Given that Arnold already had established uh, interactions, or I should say communications with the British, he's going to remain on their list. In other words, he's still going to remain a viable source for the British to um, interact with, because even, even those who might have, say, baggage, even those who have... A certain degree of instability in them, if they're willing to speak and they're willing to tell you anything that can aid the enemy, then they are then they won't be afraid to uh, risk it all. I mean, for Benedict Arnold, I'm beginning to wonder if what he um, will provide to um, the British, it won't be anything small. I, I just have a hunch it's going to be something grand, something grand that that um, could ultimately make or break the, Continental's ar- the Continental Army's well-being, given uh, the location of where this, um, given the location of where this um, particular um, matter could take place, uh, given if it's something of significant strategical value. I mean, someone does, just doesn't give away intelligence 
because they feel like it, there has to be something at stake so significant to, that will lead to the individual or individuals selling the secrets. It will lead to their being rewarded, not just in the form of money, but rewarded and with perhaps uh, receiving a uh, lead commanding post in the event they, t they uh, were to ultimately defect. So given that Arnold has already um, established interactions or communications with the British, he went about creating an alias, a secret assumed name, and he turns out he chose two folks, but the name, the two names he chose are actually under one, Gustavus Monk. The choice for the secret name is unique. Now, there was Gustavus Adolphus, who was a 17th century Swedish king, and he was a solid military leader, just like Benedict Arnold, whom led his army into the Thirty Years' War for supporting the Protestant cause. Gustavus Adolphus died in the conflict. You know, it's interesting, uh, Adolphus dies in the conflict. He died uh, believing in something that was worth fighting for, but yet he died in the cause. He died in the fighting. Did Benedict Arnold die in the fighting at Saratoga? No. How about George Monk? He served as the general in Parliament's army during the mid-17th century, English Civil War. General, Monk's, uh, general Monk led troops from Scotland to London, where he put into play events resulting in King Charles II's ouster and helped restore the English monarchy. General Monk was hailed for bringing England back to royal government and earned the highest rank for nobility. Is it fair to say that for Gustav, for um, George Monk, that he was trying to um, achieve uh, personal glory and expense that um, came as high as ultimately earning the highest rank for nobility? Is it fair to say that Benedict Arnold is trying to achieve something that will lead to the utmost rank there is, that will uh, clear him of all wrongdoings that um, had plagued him, even going into 1779? Yes. After becoming British Army's chief administrative officer, a.k.a. adjutant general in 1779, what other rank did John Andre attain during the same year. He uh, attained, attained the rank of Major in April of 1779. Major John Andre had close ties to Peggy Shippen, another person with close ties. Arnold and Joseph Stansbury uh, continued to correspond with one another, but all of their written letters would be in cipher. Another word for um, secret, write, secret writing in the form of uh, a secretive disguise. And each man was required to have a copy of William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. And there is a place in Virginia, folks, called Blackstone, Virginia, named in honor of Mr. William Blackstone. Each word, per their letters, got represented by three figures. The first figure represented the number of the book's page, where the word itself got found. The second figure represented the number of the line. The third figure uh, represented the number of the word in that line. 
topics were to be revealed per misleading language. For example, how about an elderly woman's health? You got to be secret, folks. I mean, you can't just go chirping. You can't go chirping in bars over this kind of stuff. You have to talk language that seems irrelevant, but it's got to throw people off. The risks for betrayal by Benedict Arnold are incredibly high, given that if he is caught in the action of betraying his country, he stands to lose. He stands to lose almost pretty much everything, and one thing he would stand to lose is all of his property, forcing his family to leave, while the enemies within Congress and the Continental Army could feel 100% relief. What strategic uh, location, okay, here we go uh, with regards to um, providing something to the enemy that is of uh, significant value, that would help the enemy uh, in terms of, uh, from a militaristic advantage. Uh, what strategic location spotted, or rather I should say, what strategic location spot did Benedict Arnold uh, decide upon for the Continental Army to surrender? West Point, along New York's Hudson River. West Point, folks, was the primary fortification along the Hudson River's northernmost point or end. Its defense systems for its day and time was, was truly state-of-the-art, given there were three circles where each one was inside the other, along with batteries of cannons that protected the fort from all land attacks. The Hudson River, viewed by the British, was seen as an essential link between New England and the mid-Atlantic states that helped form, or I should say establish, the key waterway route to Canada. Peggy Shippen was one of the um, most prominent of the um, of the go-betweens being uh, people who are in the middle regarding communications between uh, Benedict Arnold and John Andre. Arnold agreed to command West Point along with turning it over to the British for 20,000 pounds, roughly 3.62 million pounds in today's money. And that's 20,000 pounds in, in sterling, folks that Benedict Arnold was willing to turn West Point over um, for the British. General Washington did approve Arnold for the lead post. If Arnold prevailed at West Point, the British would give him a commission. In the event Arnold's plans failed, he would not uh, receive the requested funds, well, I, I take it back, in the event his plans did fail, he would be rescued, but he would not receive the requested funds, including a military commission. You know, I would think if your mission failed, why would we want to come uh, rescue you? But at the same time, the British know Peggy Shippen very well. They know that I'm beginning to wonder if Peggy Shippen is purposely aiding Benedict Arnold on purpose. She's just not sitting back being innocent. She has enough um, 
she has enough uh, surroundings, enough knowledge to know how sensitive not only this situation is, but how sensitive other situations were. So she's just not one of those people sitting on the sidelines tending to herself. She um, she has her, she has the ears, and she obviously is preferring to listen to her ears, so this way she can give uh, British officers information that is needed to uh, go about going forward and uh, luring someone from the opposite end, like Peggy's husband, into performing what the rest of America, being those of the uh, Patriots, see will see as something um, unforgivable. Well, in the end, um, in the event, uh, as we said in the event, if Arnold's plans failed, he would be rescued, but he would not um, receive the requested funds, including the military commission. John Andre planned to meet Arnold somewhere close to West Point, but shortly after Arnold departed for the Hudson Highlands, Early August 1780, uh, everything regarding those plans uh, set into stone went off course. Washington and Arnold met near Stony Point, only for Washington to be stunned by the fact that Arnold's mobility wasn't good enough to take the field. Well, here Benedict Arnold wanted this um, post. He he wanted this uh, job. But now all of a sudden he's making a a silly excuse to Washington that he is not feeling well enough to take the field. You know, Washington doesn't have time for, um, you know, he doesn't have time for this stuff. You know, for George Washington, yes. You know, if, if you're hurt, that's one thing. But if you're hurt, you should be so hurt that you should not even be trying to take the battlefield. And if you were well enough to be taking the battlefield, then you should be well enough to remain out there. Now, if you do come upon a serious illness, then that's a whole other story. But for Benedict Arnold to now say that he's not well enough to take the field, I mean, come on, it's been a few years after Saratoga. By now, he would be, if not 100% better, I would think he's at least 50 to 75% better. Now, Peggy Shippen is in Philadelphia at this time. She was told of her husband's newest assignment that did make her upset. And it turns out that a field command post was more physical and dangerous, yet Arnold is not, in, in Benedict Arnold's mind, he's not 100% physically stable. But isn't it fair to say that George Washington and others probably do know that the guy is much stabler than he's, uh, than he's making himself out to uh, be? Uh, plans on both sides changed come August 1780, where Washington's original intentions were to attack Manhattan, but Washington was unable to lure British General Henry Clinton's forces out of Manhattan. Washington and the troop forces returned to New York, back across the Hudson. Washington wrote to Benedict Arnold on August 3, 1780, giving him the green light to proceed on to West Point and take command of the fort and everything else nearby. You know, for George Washington, he is, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, he has stuck his neck out for Benedict Arnold. And, you know, the fact that Washington had to issue a reprimand for Arnold, that ought to be enough of a warning right there for Benedict Arnold to get his act together. 
now that he is no longer a military governor, I mean, he's got a chance to, um, he has a chance to um, redeem himself here. He's got a chance to, um, as we'd like to say, make the ultimate comeback. You know, who doesn't like a comeback? The bigger question is, can Washington trust Benedict Arnold? Can he trust Arnold well enough to say to himself, okay, he messed up his military governor. Is he willing to, has Benedict Arnold learned from his lessons? As much as I would like to say, yes, that Benedict Arnold did learn from his lessons, we probably need to um, tell ourselves right now that this is a 50-50 scenario. There's either going to be a 50% chance that Benedict Arnold did learn from his lessons, from um, from his um, lessons with regards to the improper uh, actions as military governor, or there's a 50% likelihood that something's going to unravel that is going to um, not only um, negatively impact Arnold, but could backfire on George Washington, given that Washington has stuck his neck out for Arnold. So, you know, we're not out of the woods just yet for this um, for this uh, cause of independence. I mean, the flame is still going, but even the flame itself has seen its uh, share of ups and downs. But I'm beginning to wonder how the flame of independence is going to be uh, affected now that Benedict Arnold has the green light to proceed on to West Point. The ball's in his hands, but it's all about how he chooses to make decisions that will either make or break his image. Well, thank you for your time as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're gonna um, we're gonna delve more into um, into what is called. Uh, well, I don't want to give it away, but we're gonna delve more into um, into the uncovering into the uncovering behind what behind what ultimately uh, falls apart or behind what ultimately comes down. So we've still got a lot of twists and turns to go, but we're almost there. Thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.